Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Loganberry Books, an independently owned and operated bookstore in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of Cleveland, Ohio. Loganberry features a carefully curated collection of new, used, and rare books for both readers and collectors, with an inventory over 100,000 volumes. Learn more and shop online at loganberrybooks.com. And we're brought to you by Max Bax, a proud Cleveland indie bookstore with three floors for browsing, great online service, and chocolate milkshakes right next door. Find your next great read and shop online at maxbacks.com. Where does courage come from? Are you a courageous person? Spoiler alert, I'm not. At least not courageous enough, but I'm working on it. As a young girl, I was not raised to raise my voice. I was raised to be quiet, to help in the kitchen, to set the table, to listen to my elders, to be small. And there was certainly a time and a place for all that. I had good manners. I was polite. I smiled. But as I get older and think about how I want to raise my children, especially my girls, I dream more than obedience for them. I want them to find their voices and use them. I want them to speak up in the face of injustice. And honestly, this is something I'm still learning myself. But I think you can practice courage. You can practice trying things that scare you. I started weightlifting when I was 40. I remember driving up to the gym. People were doing pull-ups and climbing ropes and heaving barbells over their heads. I was terrified. I was a marshmallow mother of three who could do exactly zero pull-ups. If my kids had not been in the car, I would have left. Instead, because they were watching, I gave it a try, and it was absolutely miserable. I couldn't do the exercises. The next day, everything hurt. But it was also thrilling. I was not a girl who was raised to lift heavy things. But as an adult, I have learned to love feeling strong. Since then, I've been stand-up paddleboarding, climbing, hiking, and kayaking. I'm pretty good at practicing physical courage. But what about verbal courage? What about speaking up when you disagree with someone? Yikes. This one is really hard for me. I don't like to ruffle feathers. I don't want people to be angry at me. But again, I think this kind of courage can be practiced. Maybe you don't start with a disagreement with your boss that could get you fired. Maybe you set a goal to speak up at least once during staff meetings. Or ask clarifying questions when someone's opinion differs from your own. Courage can be practiced. Lately, I've been helping my kids disagree with me. Instead of soliciting their obedience, I've tried to make space for their opinions. Often about small things. What are we cooking for dinner? Or whether they need to wear boots to school. I want my kids to practice the idea that their opinions matter and their ideas have merit. And even if yours are different, your ideas matter too. I was thinking so much about all of this during today's conversation with writer Thridi Umrigar, whose characters speak their minds. Especially as a woman, I search for lessons in courage anywhere I can find them. And today, 
Thridi delivers. So let me tell you a little more about her. Thridi Umrigar is the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including the novels Bombay Time, The Space Between Us, and The Secrets Between Us. Her highly anticipated new novel, Honor, was recently chosen as a selection for Reese Witherspoon's book club. Thridi's books have been translated into many languages and published in over 15 countries. She is a distinguished university professor of English at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Thridi Umrigar, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you. Thank you. I'm in an amazing book club, and I've been lucky enough to meet you before. Um, I'm just delighted that you're here because in that group, there's always a gaggle of us nudging each other other to be able to ask a question to the amazing uh, Thridi Umrigar. But <laughs> I'm still kind of fangirling that I'm here by myself. If if there are a few listeners maybe who don't um, who don't yet know you and your work, I'm wondering if you would be willing to just tell us a little of your story. It can be long and winding. It can be bullet points. But Thridi, what is the story of you? I guess the story of me is the story of my formation as a writer, you know, and I think that happened at a very, very young age. Um, when I was a child in Bombay, India, uh, we grew up in a middle class, perhaps even an upper middle class family. My father had his own business that he had started when he was very young. And um, for whatever reason, I wasn't born with the blinders that I think most affluent people who grow up in poor countries need to wear just for the sake of their own sanity so that they can survive perhaps the guilt of the obvious differences between those who have and those who don't. Um, and I somehow, those blinders fell off at birth or something. And my earliest memories uh, of myself was being excruciatingly aware of the poverty around us, even though we were not directly affected by it. Um, and somehow that that seeped into my earliest writings from the time that I sort of started writing in a, in a concentrated way, in a formal way. Um, you know, I remember the first ever short story that I had published in this women's magazine in India when I was 15. It was a story about, you know, um, a, a kid who looks up to his father, who, who is very, very poor, is an alcoholic, blah, blah. Um, so, I think I think seeing the issues of power around me really, really shaped me as a person for sure, shaped my politics, shaped my sense of morality, but also shaped me as a writer. And it's interesting to me how all these years later in my old age, um, I still seem obsessed with more or less the same, the same issues, you know. Um, and um, writing also fueled my desire to not join my father in his business, which was very painful for him, but instead to come here at the age of 21 to get a master's in journalism. Um, I don't think the kind of upbringing that I had in India, you know, it was an aspirational, middle-class, business-oriented family. There was just no role models or any path towards you know, publicly proclaiming that I wanted to be a creative writer. In those days, I wrote mostly poetry, uh, and there was certainly no path to saying I wanted to be a poet <laughs> and not get laughed out of town, you know. Uh, so I did the next best thing. I 
I went around from the time I was seven years old saying I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to write for newspapers. And I don't even know how I knew that somehow that was less dangerous than saying I wanted to be, um, you know, a creative writer. And there was, God knows, there was enough pushback even against that. You know, my father was petrified, especially by the time I was a rebellious teenager. He was petrified that I would land myself in jail or something writing <laughs> columns against the government. God knows what he was afraid of, but he was. And, and of course, that desire to have me take over the business was very strong in him, understandably so. Um, but, you know, it's one of the few times in my life I was very close to my father. I adored him. I respected him. But there was some light in me that I just had to heed. And uh, it was that light, I think, that brought me to America. And uh, the rest, as they say, is her story. That's beautiful. The light in me that I had to heed. Do you think your father saw that? Very much so. Very much so. In, in later years, I mean, when I, when I do, uh, when I speak before young people, I always tell them that it's a fine line to walk because on one hand, you know, if you are lucky enough to have the kind of parents that I did who genuinely love you and want what's best for you, it behooves us to pay attention to the advice that they are giving us. But sometimes it also makes sense to not follow their advice and, and, and pay attention to what's deep within us. And I guess wisdom comes from knowing the difference between the two, you know. And um, maybe I just got lucky, but I'm, I'm very, very happy because it ended up having good consequences for all. That's wonderful. I read that here in the States, you actually were a reporter for a time. First, I think in Lorraine, and then I, I know at the Akron Beacon, Beacon Journal, Journal. Yeah. Uh, as, as someone who wrote poetry, um, what was it like to then be a reporter? I used to, when I was a journalist, and I did that for 17 years, so long time, half my... Oh, that's half longer my, than I think I knew. Yeah, wow. half my career was spent... Um, as a journalist, I never shared this with anybody, but my own personal challenge to myself was always to write the kind of journalism, to do the kind of journalism that had the techniques or at least the, the feel and the spirit of literature. You know, I was very drawn to long form narrative journalism. I wanted to tell stories. Um, so it was the perfect opportunity to, to blend the two, you know, um, not, not to make up stories as one can do in novel writing and fiction, to tell true stories, but to tell them kind of borrowing the techniques, if you will, of fiction. In some strange way, all of this was just great exercise. It really exercised that muscle, not just the writing muscle, but also the muscle that has to embrace and accept criticism and editorial um, comments by other people, you know. Um, I've always said that the greatest gift that those years of journalism gave me as a writer today um, is that it, it, just, it just made me realize the importance of getting feedback from other people. You have to be able to take rejection um, 
there's lots and lots of forces from the publishing industry, from readers, from critics, who will always try and blow out that flame, right? And your job as a writer is to somehow, through it all, keep that flame alive. Yes, we think about being precious about a sentence, but what if we're the only one who likes that sentence? It's it's kind of referring back to what you were saying about growing up with parents who love you. When do you listen to others and when do you listen to yourself? When do you it is a balancing act, right? But being able to take in feedback and know what serves you and that you are not writing in a vacuum. You're writing for readers. And if they're not responding to what you're writing, is it them? Is it you? Is it the words? It's 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 a transaction this writing. I think you've referred to it somewhere as a dance, right, between partners. Um, and that, that contract does involve receiving feedback and, and also listening to when it doesn't serve you. I'm, I'm thinking about Hemingway. I, I, I think it was one of Paula McLean's stories where I learned that Hemingway had been a, a reporter on a beat somewhere in Canada, you know, sent to cover a polar bear at the zoo, or things like that, but that you, that many, many writers come up through all manner of writing. I, some of my first writing jobs were writing the, the boxes for advertisements, um, for the boxes for deodorant, right? Deodorant goes in a box and someone has to write what's on that box and make sure it's spelled right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I've always said that I read everything. I, I read the copy on the back of a cereal box, you know, and I can learn something from there. There can be a phrase there or a word there that, that you just absorb. So absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's I, very I once, true. I once was sent on, I believe the day before Thanksgiving to write about Tom, the 50 pound turkey, because the food writer at the beacon got a call from a very concerned reader who had actually turned out had raised a 50 pound turkey had hand-fed the 50-pound wow. turkey and then realized to her dismay she couldn't fit the turkey in her oven. And some, some editor thought this would make a wonderful front-page Thanksgiving Day story. So guess who they picked to cover that story? So, yeah, <laughs> you have to be humble about these things, you know? Oh, very true. Well, so your main character in your most recent book, your most recent book being Honor, is also a journalist, albeit a international correspondent. Did you find yourself drawing upon any inspiration from your own experience to to write this character? You, you know, not, not, as you said, she is, um, she's a foreign correspondent, which I've never been. Um, you know, her world, her beat, if you will, is much larger than mine has ever been. Um, so not in terms of the story itself. Um, and, and she's a very different person. Um, you know, she, uh, Smita, as she presents herself to us in the novel, is this rather cloistered, um, uh, narrow, uh, she has a narrow life. I mean, she has a full and rich life, but within herself, she has a lot of hurt. She has a lot of trauma. And she, and she comes across as this rather cold uh, person. Um, so, but, but what I did remember, um, when, when I was still at the beacon, I had this wonderful opportunity where I won something called the Neiman fellowship, which allowed me a year of study at Harvard. 
And um, there were 12 of us American journalists that year and 12 international fellows. And one of the things I remember, we all got very close to each other. We were together almost all the time, every day. But there was this ongoing ten tension between the American journalists, who, of course, um, this was in, I think this was in the late, late, late 1990s. Um, you know, we were all um, devotees of what we had learned in journalism school in the States, which was objectivity in journalism. And um, the international fellows who came from all across the globe and some from countries that had known war and civil war and all kinds of traumas had a very different opinion of what the role of journalists and journalism should be. And they were much more for advocacy journalism. You know, this, they, they completely rejected our model of, you know, give equal importance to both sides of a story, even if one is patently false or untrue. And so we would have these, you know, over lots and lots of glasses of wine, we would have these conversations. And I think some of that perhaps stayed with me because my character, Smita, finds herself, she's an Indian American journalist, has basically not been in India in 20 years, finds herself thrown back to cover this story. And she, for the first time in her life, really begins to question whether the same rules that apply for us here uh, are actually transferable in in an Indian context or in a third world context. So that part, I think, I drew from what I remembered from those Niemenir conversations. Well, when we first meet Smita, she's on what sounds like a fantastic holiday in the Maldives. She ends up leaving that vacation, going to the aid of a reporter friend in India, and as you say, covering a, a, a horrific story about a woman named Mina who's who's been attacked. She's been in a fire. Her husband has been in this fire and lost his life, and it was her two brothers, um, two Hindu brothers, who then burned Mina who lives, and her husband who does not. Her husband um, was Muslim. Uh, what made you want to write this story? Uh, I don't know want is the right word. I don't know that I was chomping at the bit to tell the story, but a few years prior to starting this book, I had come across a series of stories in the New York Times done by this extremely brilliant and talented reporter, um, Ellen Berry, where she was, I think she was based in South Asia at that time, and so she'd done a series of stories about uh, small town India, you know, life in the villages, and some of the stories were just about the conditions of women in, in rural India. And she, I think she did a masterful job capturing a snapshot of a country in transition. And those stories made a deep impression on me. It's not like I put them down and immediately thought, oh, this is a book. I should, I should write a book about this. And uh, a few years after that, uh, you know, I've been increasingly concerned um, with, with the condition of, of um, not just women in, in rural parts of the country, but also what I'm seeing as this growing fundamentalism, religious fundamentalism that seems to be on the rise and the parallels between what's happening here and what I was reading about and seeing happening in India, it just felt to me like I wanted to weigh in on this subject, you know. 
And so I came up with this story of these two women from very, very different backgrounds, but who both in their own ways have been victimized um, by the same forces of a patriarchal society, of, of religious bigotry, all those things, you know. Um, but it certainly was the treatment of women that that really was at the center of this book. I think Smita says, um, not too far in, I'm not giving any, anything away here. She says, everywhere she went, it seemed it was open season on women, rape, female genital mutilation, bride burnings, domestic abuse, everywhere, in every country. Women were abused, isolated, silenced, imprisoned, controlled, punished, and killed. Sometimes it seemed to Smita that the history of the world was written in female blood. I know you are, first off, the, the writing in this book throughout is is, is gorgeous, um, evocative, and, and, and gut-wrenching sometimes. I know that you're not your main character. She is fictional. You are here. And yet this was one of those lines that made me just halt in my tracks as we stand here beginning a new year in 2022. Does it still seem to you that it is open season on women? Well, yes. I mean, look at what's happening in our own country, right? If, if any country should be a beacon for um, parity uh, in the world, given all the material advantages that we have in this country, um, look at what's happening in Texas. Look at what's about to happen uh, with the Supreme Court. Um, it seems to me that one should judge any society by its treatment of its elderly, its children, and its female population. Because in most societies, these are the most vulnerable. And depending on what as good a job as any society does in protecting its most vulnerable populations, one knows whether it's, you know, a successful experiment in, in humanity or not. Yeah. I I was raised in the Catholic religion and, and took much of that as just, you know, what what it meant to go on a Sunday and, and take in these things. And it wasn't until I had daughters that my my oldest daughter, who's now 16, asked me why there weren't any any mommy priests or something like that. It was why aren't there any mommies on there? And she didn't even say in the altar. She just wanted to know where the where were the mommy priests. And that opened my eyes. Right? It took it took. It, I'm at that point. I was in my 30s until I I hadn't seen that this tradition. I, I, there's much about the Catholic faith. That is still beautiful to me. There are songs that can bring me to my knees. There is social justice warrior within me. I can name some nuns, both on and off of buses, who I would follow to battle. I mean, liberation theology, that. right? I mean, just that alone. Beautiful stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And yet, it took my daughter for me to see the patriarchy, to see the oppression, to see the inequity. And I did not want to raise a child to believe that there were spaces where women could not be. And that I, I didn't want, I mean, it's, it's hard enough that, that we have to raise a child who, who doesn't know if a woman can be president yet, right? She, there, there are plenty of areas where she can look to the Supreme Court and, and believe a woman can be there. She can look to astronauts and, and see there's a place for us. But, but, 
but it's a hard enough battle <laughs> to to make place for for women that I don't need to contribute to it by by bringing my child to places where women can't be. Right. Um, yeah. Well said. Well, you know, I wanna I wanna just go back to a very early question that you asked about how this book came about, and I want to tell you a missing piece as to why I felt it necessary to tell this story. When I was on book tour for my last book uh, called The Secrets Between Us, which is a sequel to an earlier book called The Space Between Us, um, I was doing a luncheon event somewhere out west um, at, at a country club. Uh, it was a posh event. And, and um, during, after I got done you know, with my book talk during the audience Q&A, this older woman raised her hand and stood up and asked a question that just really knocked me back. And her question was basically, why are people in India so nasty and mean? You know, why, why is the country like this? And, and I could hear sort of the horror and the disgust and the concern even in her voice. And, and I have to say that that question threw me for a loop because even though I write often about India, and I certainly write about difficult things in, in that country and society, I never mean for my readers to take that message away, that it's just a country filled with, you know, mean and nasty people, because it's just not true. You know, it's as complicated and as messy as any other nation on earth. Um, so I sort of fumbled my way through what I hope was a satisfying answer but, you know, the question haunted me for a long time. And I think, and I don't think I knew this when I started writing the book or even when I wrote and finished the book. I think it's only now that the book is about to be out in the world that I'm realizing that I wrote the book partially in answer to that question. That's wonderful. How great would it be to, to encounter that woman again <laughs> and for her to know yeah. That she's part of of the itch that you needed to scratch to to make this novel come to light. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greenie. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be a hundred percent sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but, you know. Say, we're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. <laughs> Avoid elephants. elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. It's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. Yeah, tag. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Honor is a... That's a big concept title, yeah. right? Doing what is right or what's considered right. When did that 
Title you know, you. a lot of other books, you mentioned The Space Between Us. It had a completely different working title altogether. Um, Honor was there from the very beginning. Yeah, strange. Uh, it's not, yeah, I would say it's half and half maybe. You know, some, some, some books have started under different working titles and then, um, you know, and then changed. But I think Honor was the only title I had for this book. Well, it definitely haunted me throughout the pages because I was being asked to think about what people did in the name of honor. It does not seem honorable to me at all to set fire to a man and his wife. But it, they, the, the men in this book, the, the Hindu men in this book, believe that they had been dishonored when their sister married a, a Muslim man. And so they felt they were behaving Honorably. in an honorable yeah. way, Yeah. right? Um, even the lawyer, even the lawyer who, uh, there's a lawyer we learned early on who's, uh, there's a, a lawsuit, Mina, this woman who has been burned, is suing the, the people who, the who did this. Everyone knows yeah. who did it, the yeah. brothers who did this. Um, and we learn that there is a lawyer who has taken her case, which I initially think is a very honorable thing to do. But I'm even asked to question some of her motives. It is, is it honorable to sweep in and use someone's situation to draw attention to the India's national battles with justice and to lose sight of perhaps the, the human at the heart of the story who will be more tormented, who will, who will have less of a home perhaps in a village? So I, I really did appreciate that that title made me view the characters' actions differently because it was under the banner of the you word You know, honor. there's a line in the book, I think, that says something to the effect of nobody is a villain in, in their own story. You know, um, I, I'm paraphrasing broadly, but it's something to that effect. But the sentiment is, is accurate. Um, and it's one of my core beliefs as a human being. Um, I think, as we all know, human beings are capable of really, really awful behavior. Um, but for the most part, you know, maybe this is the tragedy of, of being human, is that even when people are doing really awful stuff, they don't, they, they can always justify it, it seems like, you know. They always have some explanation for why they were forced to act the way they did. And Mina's brothers most certainly feel almost pious, um, you know, and, and very, very uh, self-righteous about their actions. They, they, they present themselves as if they had no choice in the matter, you know. And she she made them do this. She by, made them do this. She her love exactly. She forced them into this action, and that, of course, is horrifying in itself. That kind of a mentality. Well, we get a line from Mina in her reflections where she says, "As children, we were taught to be afraid of tigers and lions. Nobody taught us what I know today." the most dangerous animal in this world is a man with wounded pride. Um, again and again, I found myself writing down lines and underlining lines just th throughout. Um, when you say that women or when, when you write that a woman can live in one of two houses, fear or love, it is impossible to live in both at the same time. I think as a nation right now in our country, we are struggling quite a bit with acting in fear or acting in love. And it can be so hard to tell the difference. I mean, even in my own life as a parent of three children, when my child wants to climb high and jump from something, it's fear 
that makes me want to say say no. I can think it's love, but it's not. Love makes me want my child to climb higher and to jump far. Love is what makes me let go of him and see what he can do. That's but I think so beautiful. We mistake the two. You you must be a great mom. I mean, just that's that's really lovely. I mean, that's that's perfect, really. Thank you. Thank you. I, I loved thinking about that confluence of love and fear, though, that that I think what we do when we're afraid. In fact, it was Rebecca Mackay, someone else oh, who and I, I have in common her. because yeah. we both esteem her. She was talking about um, just look at what we do when we're afraid. Look at how we behave when we are afraid. Look at what we reach for when we're what we we are at our worst when we're afraid and, and how we make our way back to love tells us a lot about um, who we are. And, you know, for that reason, I, I truly believe that in every society, in every nation, whatever governments or society can do to alleviate people's fear, we should do. Like, I feel like that principle should inform all economic and political policy. Because there are things that no government, no society can control. I can get cancer today and nothing can protect me from that. And that would cause its own kind of fear. You know, I could keel over with a heart attack and, you know, most likely nobody can prevent that. But if somebody can give me health care, then that would alleviate a lot of the fears that would follow getting a disease, you know. In your case, if, if there was a support system for young mothers and, you know, for those who need it, if there was a daycare system, I mean, anything that we can do for each other to make this fraught business of being human a little more bearable, I feel like no questions asked, that's, that's what our priority should be. So it's real simple. I don't know what ism that falls under, you know. You can call it any ism you want. Call it socialism. Call it capitalism. Call it by any name. Call it Fred. <laughs> Makes no difference to me. But take care of people, right? I think I would call that love. In fact, you define love in this book. And ever since reading um, Love Story years ago as a teenager, I'm always on the alert when a writer defines love because I'm always afraid because we all know that love, in fact, requires you to say you're sorry, that that was a terrible death my, with regards to, was it Eric Siegel? Yes. So, but you you talk about, um, I think it's Smita who reflects, but it could have been Mina. And I'm, I, I've read the book, but then, Tell me, I'll tell you. Very recently. So maybe in the end, that's all that love was, doing the hard thing, not roses and valentines Smita. and walks on the beach, Smita Smita, says that. but simply being present day after ordinary day. How we care for each other on ordinary days. I think what you were referring to is those things that make life able to be lived, right? That that make people be able to go to the doctor when they are when they are sick, that, that make it so that I can go to my job and know that my children will be cared for. How we love one another and care for one another on ordinary days is a, is a great measure of, as you say, as a society, as, as, as a, a measure of who we are. I love yeah, that definition. No, I think, love. I mean, that's, I think that comes from lived experience. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's easy and it's fun to send somebody flowers on Valentine's Day, you know, and 
those walks on the beach. I mean, even in Cleveland, Ohio, you know, who doesn't enjoy walks on the beach? You know, that's, that's the fun part of love, you know, but if that's all it is, it's not going to work. You know, it's that holding up that barf bag when somebody is puking, you know, it's, it's, it's a cold compress on somebody's hot forehead. It's, it's watching TV and being a little bored uh, in the evenings, you know, it's, that's, that's what love is, I think. I love that. Love is vacuuming or um, unloading well, the dishwasher on, a, on, a, on a, my husband vacuuming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's love. You feel love for him when he's vacuuming. That's right. Yes. That's right. Uh, or or yeah. loading the dishwasher or, or packing a lunch on a, on a rainy Tuesday. Yeah, just um, being at our best when we're reading a story to our kids at night, loving those everyday details. That was great. There was another um, theme, a thread that I saw in this book about um, Mohan says to Smita, all important things in life are supposed to scare you, which which echoes back to something her brother says um, when he quits his job he, to start his own business. He says, look, I know it's a risk, but at some point you have to jump. I'll either land on my feet or I'll land on my face, but either way, I'll own the fall. Oh, I, I just stopped in my tracks and thought about the times when we're afraid to own our own fall, that that important things in life are scary, that, um, but that they're worth it. Um, have you found this to be true in your own life? Yeah, very much so. And I have to say, you know, when I, when I left the Beacon Journal and became a professor at Case Western, I left a job that I'd done for many, many years you know, knew the community, knew my readership, knew certainly my colleagues, loved them all, could do at that point with almost both hands tied behind my back, you know. And I took a 10-month appointment as a visiting professor at Case. And um, while I was there in the first year, I, I so fell in love with my students and my colleagues at Case. And there was just absolutely no possibility, I was just replacing my friend and colleague, Mary Grimm, beautiful fiction writer herself, who was on sabbatical for just one year. That's all. That, that was the gig. And I was supposed, I would supposed to be booted out, um, after Mary came back. Um, and I, of course, you know, did the smart thing, uh, after I took that job and went on the job market the academic job market immediately got got a tenure track offer that was like they were promising me the sun and the moon and i said no to them which nobody says no to a tenure track job offer it just doesn't happen um, unless you have a better tenure track job offer which i did not <laughs> all i had was that one year of visiting professorship but it was just a leap of faith um, and as it turned out, the journalism guy went on a two-year sabbatical immediately after that. <laughs> I was at Case for three years in just this very ambiguous, um, you know, status uh, of being a visiting prof. Um, but while I was there for those three years, my colleagues started going to the dean's office and to the chair's office and saying, let's figure out a way to keep her. Um, and and all these years later, you know, I'm I'm now a full professor um, 
at case. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply grateful, of course, for the institutional support that my colleagues have given me all these years. Um, and I'm also deeply grateful for whatever that voice was that told me, stick around. Cleveland's beautiful. Case is a great university. Just believe, you know, with no evidence to, all evidence to the contrary, just believe that something good will come out of being here. And it has, you know. So it's hard to know, you know, not every single decision that one makes results in success, right? So, so, but if you don't make a decision, you also know what the inevitable end is going to be. The fact is, you know, it might have looked foolish on paper to leave journalism when I did, but we all know what's happened to the newspaper industry. So it was just a matter of maybe I would have made it another couple of years, maybe three years, but sooner or later, something would have had to change anyway. So why not be a little bit one step ahead of that change that's then forced on you, you know? Yeah, and willing to own your own exactly. fall. That either way, either yeah. way you'll know. Well, you must be a pretty tremendous teacher that they uh, that what started as a 10-month temporary gig has has lasted it, <laughs> as long you as know, it has. <laughs> I, my students are just incredible. I mean, case students are just incredible. I, you know, when I, when I started there, there were times when I wondered uh, if I wouldn't be happier on a campus that was just a liberal arts campus, you know, uh, because case, as you know, is mostly, you know, a lot of my, I mean, many of them are English majors, but we, we get students from all the hard sciences, you know, who take writing classes and that kind of thing. And honestly, all these years later, I wouldn't change a thing uh, because they're just so smart. You know, the kids who come to us and, and this is something that they enjoy doing and what a treat it is. I think a lot of students come because they think it's going to be an easy light class after the heavy science classes that they're used to. And I take great sadistic <laughs> pleasure in, in pointing out to them uh, that writing too comes with its own rules and its own structure. And yes, you can break those rules, but by golly, you better know those rules first before you even think about breaking them, you know. So they find out uh, to their amazement that it's a little harder than what they did in high school, you know. And uh, I rub my hands with glee uh, when I see that <laughs> light bulb going off. Oh, that's great fun. That's great fun. Uh, I have a million other things I could ask you about, but they always make me do wrap-ups. So most teachers are supposed to start with, like, get-to-know-you questions at the beginning of class. I like to do them at the end. So at the end of our conversation, I'm just going to ask you a few um, – there's no point system – a few multiple choice questions and short answer. So um, these are multiple choice. Um, coffee or tea? Coffee in the morning, tea in the afternoon. Oh, I like this. I'm a tea in the morning, coffee in the afternoon girl. So I like this. Um, mountains or beach? So when I was six and seven years old, I used to sit by myself on our beautiful balcony in my Bombay apartment and ask myself exactly this question for like <laughs> hours at a time thinking there had to be one right answer. And then when I was in my 20s or 30s, I discovered the coast of Oregon and realized one doesn't have to choose. You can have both. Um, definitely the ocean speaks to me like nothing else in the world. 
but the mountains have a kind of majesty and loneliness to them that also tugs at my heart. But if you held a gun to my head... Which I never would do. Ocean girl. <laughs> Love that answer. That's beautiful. Those torn torn paper mountains. I used to live in Washington State, so those oh, torn paper mountains oh, along the coast. My God. And, I mean, it, I never tired of looking at yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, dogs or cats? These are all both answers. I've <laughs> uh, I've had both. Um, my most recent uh, pets were cats, um, but I love I love all animals. I mean, you can add a monkey to the mix, and I would say all of the above. You know. <laughs> Next time we talk, I would love to see a monkey just peeking around the corner to say, I "How's can, it going?" I can probably <laughs> produce a stuffed monkey right now. <laughs> I like this. There's a beanie baby on my bookshelves behind me. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, early bird or night owl? Night owl. Uh, cake or pie? Cake. Are you a risk taker or the person who knows where the band-aids are? I think more of a risk taker. I certainly don't know where the band-aids are, you know. What is a song that you love? Oh, I love A Day in the Life by the Beatles on Sgt. Pepper. How about a favorite uh, book or film or both, movie or book? Oh, my God. Um, love Beloved by Toni Morrison. Love just about any novel by Virginia Woolf. But like so many, I love um, The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. I mean, just so many, many books, you know. I don't know if I complained to you in a nice way that I had been lobbying for The Great Believers for easily a year you told before me. my book club yeah, heard you yeah. mention it. And then they said, oh, Thrifty, we'll, then- we'll do that. <laughs> Yeah, and you all did do it, right? I was so mad. Yeah. But yeah. then I also very yeah, happy. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. I, I um I was just glad that we read it. It's a it's a wonderful book. Yeah. Um do you have a favorite ice cream? Um yeah, Mitchell's what is it called? Uh wild is it bla- it's black raspberry with chocolate chip. That yeah, it's delightful. Is. I think I have some mm. in the basement and I might yeah. right after this yeah. have to. Yeah. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> Uh, last one, if we were to take a picture of you, um, happy doing something we you love, what would we see you doing? Walking in the woods. That's a great image. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you, Thridi Umrigar, for coming on the show today, for reminding us to follow our light, for reminding us to not be afraid to write the biggest story that we can. Um, I'm fascinated by your work, by your wisdom. And um, for folks who aren't familiar, uh, Thridi Umrigar is the author of many books, including The Secrets Between Us, The Space Between Us, Sugar and Milk, which thank you for writing that. What a beautiful, we didn't talk about that today, but for folks who are looking for a way to talk about, I, I'm going to use the word immigration, but I just talk about hospitality and welcoming the stranger please check out sugar and milk that's a beautiful story by the way thank you thank you thank you for writing that it's a children's book yeah yes it is a children's book but i think for all ages i think for all ages we all need to be reminded about what it means to welcome the stranger most of us were welcomed to this country from away and we forget that and then what we've been discussing today which is uh 3d's later latest book which is called honor it has just been released and I tore right through it. I'm going to have to read it yet again because I read it 
just in a, in a race to have a conversation with you, but I will slow down and read it again. I loved these characters. I loved their journey. I have a bit of a crush on one of the people, and I won't say who. I'll let others decide. Um, but you did. You wrote that a book is a interplay, a dance that only comes alive when there are two partners, the writer and the reader. And I know that you thank us for dancing with with you, but I thank you for for composing the music and writing the steps and um, making our lives better because of the connections that you um, that you write for us. So thank you. And Marie, you just might be the most musical and eloquent uh, interviewer I've ever encountered. So thank you so much. This was a great, it wasn't even an interview, it was just a great conversation. Thank you. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers, Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.